Tonight, Donald Trump made history once again last night, becoming the first former president to be criminally indicted on federal charges. We preview one of the stories that will dominate the airwaves next week and bring you part two of our Peril and Promise special report on the smoke that consumed our city and put us all at risk as Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos, Estate of Worthington Mayo Smith. Good evening and welcome to the special front page forecast edition of Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Last night, former President Donald Trump was once again criminally indicted, this time by the U.S. Justice Department, making him the first former president in U.S. history to face federal charges. Trump has been charged with seven counts related to his mishandling of classified documents, including willfully retaining national defense secrets in violation of the Espionage Act. We will be bringing you much more on this story next week as it unfolds. But tonight, our coverage continues on the biggest story impacting New Yorkers from this past week, the smoke that engulfed our city and turned our blue skies into an apocalyptic shade of orange. Though the air quality is improving, questions remain about the long-term health impacts of exposure to smoke-filled air what is really happening to our bodies when we breathe in this kind of smoke, and what are the city and state doing to protect New Yorkers from hazardous conditions like these and the inevitable future cat catastrophic weather events that climate change will cause? So here to answer those questions and more as part of our Peril and Promise special reporting is Dr. Jay Varma. Now, Dr. Varma was a familiar face during the coronavirus pandemic when he served as Mayor Bill de Blasio's senior advisor for public health and chief COVID-19 official. And now he's a professor of population health sciences at Will Cornell Medical and the director of the Cornell Center for Pandemic Prevention and Response. Dr. Varma, welcome to Metro Focus. Great. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, let's just start with uh, our lungs, because I feel like the past three years with the pandemic and then adding on this recent event, our uh, lungs have been through quite a lot. What is understood about breathing in this kind of toxic air? Yeah, no, it's it's a really great analogy that you drew there between, uh, you know, the breathing in of pathogens, viruses and bacteria and now breathing in pollutants, uh, things that come as a result of this wildfire smoke, and then of course, obviously industrial pollution. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that we know, and there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. So let's focus on what we know. Uh, mm -hmm. What we know is that this type of, of air 
has a really complex mix of all different types of particles. Um, and so we don't actually know what each of those particles do, but we know that one particular type, those that are the smallest, and you, if you read about it, they'll call it PM 2.5 or particulate matter that's, that's very, very small. That we know from a lot of research in laboratories and looking at large populations is very dangerous to humans. Um, basically, you breathe it in through your nose and in your mouth, it goes into your lungs, and then it goes from your lungs and into your airways. And so long-term exposure to this has been uh, documented to be a cause of heart attacks, um, of strokes, and, and in some estimates around the world, it's estimated to cause anywhere from 10 to 15% of heart attacks are probably attributable to this type of air pollution. So long-term exposure is really what we're most worried about here. Now, I certainly don't want to be alarmist in any way, but this almost sounds a little bit like what we came to understand after the uh, air pollutants that were in the air after 9-11. It took several years to see the full effect of the impact because, again, those tiny particles, people were breathing those in um, and getting just horrifically sick and in some cases losing their lives. I'm not saying that's what you're predicting for this situation, but is there something similar that we can understand where the full understanding won't be maybe for a few years? You're absolutely correct that there is a lot that we don't know. Now, of course, um, there are, you know, I spent a lot of my time working over species. I, I spent three years living in Beijing uh, from 2008 to 2011, where the air quality, you know, quite frankly, was very similar to what it has been in New York for the past few days. Um, and so we, we know that people can live in this air. Uh, but we also know that there are these longer term side effects and they're the short term side effects of difficulty breathing, eye and nose irritation. But as you know, there may be other risks as well, too. This is incredibly hard for scientists to actually tease apart. You know, you can do studies, for example, in the lab with animal models. But humans, if you think about it, we're breathing every moment of our lives, right? And what you're breathing varies a lot depending on where you are. And, and so it's actually really hard for, for, for us to design studies uh, because you don't really know what any individual is breathing at any given moment, right? You can't randomize people to, to different groups like we do for say a drug trial or a, or a vaccine. Well, there was a lot of talk, especially um, during the height of the smoky air, that was about people who are at high risk or people who are at risk and the super importance of them to stay out of the you know, open air. Can you tell us a little bit more about who's at risk? So we know that in the short term, and that means like, you know, from the days you're breathing this, you know, what happens to you, that anybody who has any type of underlying lung problem or heart problem, um, you know, those are two things that make it difficult to breathe, um, is going to be at a higher risk of having some type of complications. So, so let's make that pretty straightforward. Let's say you have a child with asthma or you're an adult with obstructive lung disease, we call COPD. Um, this is going to make it harder. You're going to most likely have an increase in your cough, uh, maybe an increase in your wheezing, you might have a lot of difficulty breathing. And so what we worry about as, as physicians is, you know, people running out of their medications or even worse, having so much difficulty breathing that they, you know, go to the hospital. Um, and I was just looking just before we did this interview at the data from the, the health department, they release uh, ER visit data, usually it comes about 24 to 48 hours after it happened. And, and sure enough, the peak day for asthma visits in 2023 
was on Wednesday, right? We don't have the data yet for Thursday or Friday, but from two days ago, that is that is the peak. And so, so that's the group that we worry about. Now, of course, there are other people that may be at risk too. You know, women who are pregnant, um, you know, they often have difficulty breathing as a result of, you know, complex body changes. This could make their breathing worse. And so the real advice out there is to make sure that um, if you fall into one of those groups or really quite frankly, if you're anybody, because you may not know you have some underlying susceptibility, you know, really wear one of those high quality masks anytime you're breathing air outdoors. It's meant to filter this type of pollution, just like it's meant to filter uh, small, small viruses and bacteria. And so that brings me to my other question, because I know that, you know, people were talking about masking up again. Um, the city was giving out N95 masks. Um, should we consider masks perhaps to be an ongoing, maybe not every day during the height of the pandemic, but an ongoing part of our future? You know, I, again, I lived in, in Asia for, well, I lived in, in Beijing for three years, and before that, I spent five years living in, in Bangkok. And, and these are places that, number one, have had a longstanding problem with air pollution, and number two, have been through uh, bird flu outbreaks, the first SARS outbreak, the COVID outbreak. And in a lot of those places, it, it's quite common for people to to wear masks. And you know, many of my colleagues did on a regular basis when there's an air quality event, whether it's due to an infection or due to, to pollution. So I do think it's part of the sort of arsenal, you know, that people need to have. You move to a cold weather climate, what do you do? You buy hats and gloves. Okay, you move to an area that's going to be more polluted. Think about having a mask available. This doesn't mean that we want to see people wearing masks all the time for all good reasons, right? We're all humans. We we respond to facial cues. These are important. But it's something that people need to not be sort of partisan or political about and think about as just a basic safety measure that you may need to use, whether it's during a surge of respiratory viruses or a surge related to pollution. And it's interesting that you bring up partisan or political because, unfortunately, mask wearing during the pandemic uh, became partisan, became very political. And I'm wondering is there anything that, you know, government institutions can do to help mitigate, I guess, the long-term damage of, you know, dangerous air, dangerous water, things like that, when there has, a, there is such a growing skepticism about some of the institutions that used to be trusted? No, you make an excellent point about the, the challenge of changing human behavior when those messages you know, are largely going to end up coming from government. And there is a gap in, in how people trust their government officials. So, you know, in addition to all of the things we know that need to be done related to climate change, like preventing these types of fires in the first place, you know, the one area that has been underinvested in by governments and that is shouldn't be considered, you know, partisan is improving indoor air quality. And what I mean by that is, you know, during COVID, I, I hope some people recognize the fact that, you know, one of the interventions that that governments wanted to get people to do was to use indoor air purifiers, either a filter in your central heating ventilation system or one of those standing room devices. Now, of course, the only people that can afford to do that are people with the money or institutions mm -hmm. that have the ability to invest in it. So really what this comes down to, like a lot of interventions, is regulation, you know, government putting out and enforcing standards on indoor air. And, and one of the great things that this, you know, that this White House and, and administration did in the past year was pull together a summit. There's now very clear guidance from CDC and from the EPA about how to improve indoor air. That means getting these filters installed, getting air purifiers, you know, starting with our public spaces that government can do, and then moving on to commercial and then residential. And that was something that, you know, it's like clean water, right? You know, we don't have to fight about 
you know, filtering the water because long ago governments recognized that everybody deserves clean water. Well, now is the time for us to recognize that everybody deserves clean air. And, and that doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or, or whether you believe in it or not, your air is going to be clean just because it's there already. And, and that's kind of the way it should be. Well, you know, you uh, you sort of mentioned, uh, talked about how this is uh, this kind of air quality issues happen all over the place. And for people who were on social media, at least during the height of the smoke coming over the uh, metropolitan area, might have seen a lot of advice from people on the West Coast who deal with this constantly, trying to give advice about how to mitigate these problems, how to keep yourself safe. Is there anything that we can learn from what states like, you know, California, Washington, Oregon, how they have dealt with uh, these issues? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I've, I have many friends and family that live on the West Coast that have been enduring this for many years. And I think that um, there's a couple of things. The first is early warning systems, right? Um, you know, there's been some criticism in the media about how the governor or the mayor should have responded. You know, my perspective on it is, you know, look, the most important thing is to be forward looking. And I think what we need is similar to the way in which um, you know, New Yorkers are notified routinely about coastal storms as they're emerging, you know, in the Atlantic or in the South, you know, and we stay on the ready, like, oh, maybe five or six days from now, there may be a big storm. We need to be thinking now about how to do that with air quality. And, and, I, and I hope that, you know, at the state and the city level, they're really thinking about how they can help prepare the public for this, right? Because you can't just suddenly say, everybody wear masks today. People need to stock up and have them available. Or if they happen to have air filters, knowing that they can do them. So number one is early warning. Number two is, I think there has to be thought about what to do for those people in the city. And there's a lot of them in, our, in this city, as we know, who will not have access to, 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 to clean air. Um, that particularly includes people who are unhoused, right? And so just like the city sets up cooling centers during heat emergencies, it should invest in building uh, the air purification systems to also make those clean air facilities as well, right? I mean, it, it's not that difficult to engineer a system where you you put in these air filters on top of your air conditioning to filter it out. So I think those are, are two types of very straightforward interventions that I think um, you know city and state government can do to help prepare us uh, for a future in which these events are, are unfortunately going to be more likely than not. All right. Well, Dr. Varma, I want to thank you so much for taking time to help uh, give us some deeper understanding and perhaps assuage some fears. So thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus. Great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia. And right now, more than six million people are living with it in the United States, a number that is expected to double over the next two decades. Earlier this year, the FDA approved a new drug that is offering hope in the fight against this devastating disease. The drug, called Lakembi, appears to slow cognitive decline in the early stages of Alzheimer's, though not without some potential risks. Patients are also finding it hard to get coverage for the treatment. And this all comes amid a recent report from the Alzheimer's Association warning that the national cost of caring for patients with Alzheimer's will rise dramatically over the coming years. The report also reveals that too often individuals with memory concerns do not tell their doctors, missing a critical first step towards diagnosis and potential treatment. 
Joining me now to discuss both the promising new treatment as well as the findings of the latest report on Alzheimer's is Dr. Nicole Purcell. She's a neurologist and senior director of clinical practice for the Alzheimer's Association. Dr. Purcell, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's, let's, for some context for this conversation, um, let me go back to what I just mentioned here in the introduction, and that is the numbers of people that we are finding who are suffering from Alzheimer's. Uh, your reaction to that, are you surprised at the number we're talking about? And then talk about what the projected numbers are in the near future. So currently there's more than 6.7 million individuals living with Alzheimer's disease over the age of 65 in the United States alone. And there are more than 11 million caregivers providing care to those affected individuals. It's a staggering number. And when you look at the cost of that care, it's approximately $345 billion this year alone. Were you surprised, again, you live in this world and uh, you know, I've been involved in this with the Alzheimer's Association for a number of years, and yet I was jarred by the numbers. Are you, who are living in this world, who are dealing with this and trying to find cures and treatments, uh, is that number surprising to you? It is surprising. And when you look at the projections that the number will increase to a, uh, close to 13 million people by the year 2050, it's even more staggering. It's tremendous amount of people in the United States and worldwide that have the disease. Let's talk about one of the headlines here in, in the introduction, and that is the, the approval for a new drug. We called it, I described it, Lakembi, I believe is the name that's being used for it. That's correct. Talk a little bit about what it is designed to do and what the findings have been in terms of its efficacy. So the new medications that are approved by the FDA for treatment of Alzheimer's disease are designed to reduce the amyloid plaques that accumulate in the brain and cause pathology for this disease. So there's currently two of them. Lakembi was the most recent one as of January of 2023. And it's important to note that these medications are approved for the indication of early Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment. So that means it's very important that if you or a loved one are experiencing symptoms of memory loss or cognitive difficulties, to talk to your primary care physician as soon as you notice those symptoms. And in, in terms of what this is, because I know that when you hear something being developed for Alzheimer's, uh, most people's initial instinct is, is this a cure? Have, have we found a cure here? What's the answer to that in terms of this drug? And what's the answer in terms of how close are we at all to a cure? So these new medications are not a cure, but they have been shown to slow the progression of cognitive decline. Um, we do know that um, there are other proteins that are involved um, with being deposited in the brain with Alzheimer's disease. So it may be that it may take a combination of medications. So there are new medications that are in the pipeline on the horizon undergoing clinical trials at this time. And it may be a matter of needing a combination of medications to attack this complex disease in multiple ways. I'm gonna come back in, in, in a, a moment uh, to this drug and, and how accessible it is to patients. But let me come back to something that you mentioned just a moment ago that I think is very important. Mm -hmm. And that is the reluctance 
that that patients have to talk about the onset or at least questions that they might have about their cognitive ability with their medical providers. Clearly, there's no uniform answer to the question why, but generally speaking, what are you finding in terms of why patients are so reluctant to talk about it? Well, that was the other striking finding in our report of facts and figures this year is that individuals that are experiencing difficulty with their memory and cognition they are not talking to their primary care physicians. They feel more comfortable talking to their family or friends about their their issues. They feel that maybe they can compare their symptoms to what their friends are experiencing to see if they're normal or abnormal. And and, uh, individuals also express concern that if they do talk to their primary care physician, they may get a diagnosis of dementia and that's not something they necessarily want or they may have um, a misdiagnosis. They maybe get you know, they may be told that they have something else that they don't have. So they did report several things as reasons for why they aren't approaching their primary care physicians. So how do you get, and and we lived through, through this, my mother-in-law suffered from Alzheimer's before she passed away and my wife, and, and she had always been very close and they, she she saw it and yet my mother-in-law wouldn't admit to it. How do, what's the advice that you can give, and this is to family members at this point, if they see something happening, how do they communicate with their loved one to try to say to them, all right, we we need to get to a medical provider and we need to accept that this is happening? You bring up a very good point that many people that are experiencing difficulty with their memory, they don't have insight into it, so they don't realize it. So we encourage, uh, you know, loved ones or care partners um, to discuss it with the, the individual that they're seeing the problem and encourage them and actually attend the physician's visit with them. And it's very helpful on the physician's end to not only have the individual with symptoms, but their loved one that's seeing changes or things going on with the person, it gives us much better insight into what's actually going on. I think the other thing that is important besides care partners or loved ones encouraging the individual, primary care providers also reported that they generally wait for the patient or a loved one to bring up their symptoms of memory concerns instead of making it a routine part of clinical care. But I think we need to reduce the stigma and make this a part of every clinical visit. You mentioned stigma, and and that is such a hurdle for so many different medical maladies and ailments. This, I think, carries with it, it, it carries with it fear along with the stigma. I think you start thinking, I, I can't remember where I left my keys today, and that your next thought is, oh dear, I, am I getting uh, Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia? So what what do you say to, again, either patients or family members uh, and primary care physicians so that they can be invested into? What, what do you say to them about how do we deal with the fear of a diagnosis that then causes this reluctance? Well, it's been my experience with seeing patients that if I can ensure them that they're not going to go through this process uh, alone so that they do have a loved one there that's with them or they do have family and they have their physicians that are going to guide them through this and uh, hopefully enabling them to, to develop a trust so that as they progress through the disease, that they're trusting that their physicians and their care partners are going to act in their best interest always. 
And I think it's very um, important for primary care physicians to just bring up memory concerns at every visit. So it just seems to be a normal part of routine care and the discussion, and it'll help patients feel more at ease when trying to have these conversations with them. Let me come back to the Lakemi, the drug that we talked about before, mm-hmm. and, and you discussed you know, what it's designed to do, what hopefully it can do, underscoring not a cure here, but a treatment early stages, as you said. Uh, is it readily available at this juncture to patients? So it is not readily available as far as coverage goes for um, payers. So most of the um, patients over the age of 65 are Medicare beneficiaries, and Medicare is currently not covering the drug outside of experimental uh, clinical trials. Um, Recently, the Veterans Health Administration did release a report indicating that they are going to cover it for their their beneficiaries that um, are uh, qualifying for the medication. I suspect people are going to have the same reaction that I'm having right now. I'm sitting here saying, wait a minute, I'm on I'm Medicare. I'm that age. Uh, and so I'm especially concerned about the availability of drugs that might uh, be more necessary for me as an older person. Uh, and I, I suspect that viewers are watching, listening to this, and they're puzzled. Saying, well, wait a minute, if the FDA has approved this, why is Medicare, who is supposed to be taking care of us in our, our older ages where this is more prevalent, why are they not jumping in with both feet and, and applauding this and saying, absolutely, let's get it to everybody we possibly can? Is there an answer to that? Well, part of the, the answer um, lies with the FDA approval. So the medications were approved under an accelerated approval approach. And so Medicare... Um, has not agreed to cover this unless the medication receives full approval. And it's my understanding that that information is sitting with uh, the FDA currently, and at some point uh, they will review it in the near future. Are there are there other drugs or treatments that are in the pipeline right now that, that you and the Alzheimer's Association are familiar with that at least have some potential um, for, for providing additional care? There's approximately 140 um, medications that are in the pipeline, and these medications are um, effective at a wide variety of strategies. Some of them are um, against amyloid. Some of them are against tau, which is another protein that accumulates in the brain with Alzheimer's disease. Some of them are anti-inflammatory medications. So there's different strategies of medications coming through the pipeline, so it's very hopeful. And I've got about a, got a minute or so left here. So for folks that are that are watching this, watching our conversation, and are saying, you know what, this sounds familiar. Some of these symptoms sound familiar either for me or for a loved one or a friend. Where do they go to find information and guidance? So the first place they should go is their primary care physician and discuss their symptoms with their primary care physician to get an assessment and to get a diagnosis. And if there's additional information, um, certainly uh, come to the Alzheimer's uh, website, which is alz.org, and you can find information there. We also have a helpline, and that helpline number is on our website. All right. Well, Dr. Nicole Purcell, thank you so much for for sharing this information, helpful information for us, giving us a better understanding. And and thank you to you and all the folks at the Alzheimer's Association for the wonderful work that you're doing. We'll check back with you soon to see what kind of progress we're making. Thank you again. You be well. Thank you.